0: Our teaching tonight, again, comes on the heels of what we just looked at in Mark chapter 9 on the Transfiguration account. We're going to look at Mark 9, verses 14 through 29. And here we read, When they came to the other disciples, this is Jesus and the inner circle of three. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. And as soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. Men of in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If, if you can do anything, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? And Jesus replied, this kind can only come out by prayer. This is God's word. Mention mentioned our first text was the Mount of Transfiguration account. And our text here starts with Jesus coming down that mount, Jesus and the disciples. And so they go from this glorious mountaintop moment on the Mount of Transfiguration down into the Uh, Like abyss of daily demons and what do they find but Jesus' other disciples, the other nine are interacting with the Jewish leaders and they're fighting. They're arguing with one another. And one of the reasons you say, like, why is that? One of the things that you have to keep in mind is that Jesus' disciples really aren't uh, that biblically trained. Not like Jewish lawyers were. Jewish religious leaders, Jewish scribes were extraordinarily well-versed in the Bible The disciples who were fishermen and uh, uh, tax collectors weren't quite, they knew their Bible but not quite as well as these guys. Therefore, the only thing that they really had up on the Jewish leaders was the ability to tap into the supernatural power that Jesus had given them, to teach with authority, to drive out demons, and to cure the sick. And when they couldn't do that in this moment, so a guy has brought his demon-possessed son to them to help, and when they couldn't do that, their credibility is totally shot. And so... They inform Jesus what's happening, why there's a fight and they say, we can't do anything with this demon. Now, I also want to just take a moment to pause on that because I understand when, you, when you're in church and we talk about things like demons and demon possession and, and for that matter, some of us are at the beginning of our Christian faith. Some of us are uh, here in part, if we're real, because our uh, spouse maybe drags us along to be here sometimes. Some of us are like considering Christian faith or whatever else. And so when we talk in a cavalier way about demonic possession, it strikes people as a little odd. And here's what I want to say about that. Uh, the symptoms that are given for us here in the demonic possession are what? The foaming at the mouth, the gnashing of teeth, and um, the, what seems to be like a seizing, a seizure that ends in something like muscle rigidity. And if you're wondering, if you take those symptoms and plug them into WebMD's symptom checker, You don't get demonic possession. Trust me, I'm a couple steps ahead of you of this already. Uh, You get a general epilepsy. And so this has led a lot of people who, you know, academics in the middle of the 20th century who were modernist in their philosophy and were disinclined to believe in things of a supernatural nature, therefore typically looked at pre-scientific writers like the New Testament authors authors of the Bible, and said these guys are just misdiagnosing what the situation is and maybe he just has some kind of medical condition that they didn't fully understand. Now, that explanation does not work for a couple of different reasons that I don't think everybody always gives a fair shake to. It doesn't work in part because the New Testament writers make a very clear distinction between things like seizures and demonic possession. Read through Matthew 4.24. Very clearly, there's a distinction between a physical ailment and a spiritual ailment that causes physical ailments. Furthermore, you also find that anytime Jesus confronts a demon in the Gospels, there's a dialogue that goes back and forth. There's like this growling, guttural interaction with the demon, which, by the way, is not a common uh, comorbidity with epilepsy. And therefore, you have to assume that there's something else probably going on here. Now, what I think is if you take into account an open mind with both the physical realm and the metaphysical realm, what you find is that maybe it's possible that demons who go out of their way to try to influence human behavior maybe have the capacity to provide stimuli and persuasion to the same portions of the brain that might otherwise cause things like seizures. So, for instance, I'm not going to claim to be an expert on it, but I do know that seizures, there's, there's a number of different kinds even though we don't necessarily understand a lot about so, there's, there's focal and there's generalized seizures. There's provoked and unprovoked seizures and they all seem, so far as doctors can tell, to happen from an excessive amount of neural activity that comes when neurons that normally fire intermittently all start firing at the exact same time. That brings about a seizure. That's the commonality in all the different kinds of seizures. Now, all I'm trying to say is, instead of just saying, well, it's just a demon pulling the strings or saying it's just epilepsy, If you account for both a metaphysical and physical worldview, couldn't you say that these same demons, like a real demon, can provide the stimuli and persuasion to something in the brain that is the same center that otherwise controls things like seizures and it's, in other words, it's not a physical or a spiritual thing, it's a spiritual thing that allows for a physical outlet to it. That, to me, is what very clearly makes the most sense of the data that's right in front of us, okay? One other thing that I want to add to this, and it's what the father says. You'll notice he says this demon has often thrown the boy into the fire or water to kill him. So another reason to assume uh, malevolent forces at work here is who do you know with epilepsy struggles with being tossing themselves into fire or into water? They don't. And therefore, it seems to suggest there is some type of, again, spiritual force. Demons, on the other hand, always are seeking destruction and so that would make sense that that's what's behind this. Okay. So, we have the nine disciples who did not were not up on the Mount of Transfiguration, who were unable to drive this demon out and Jesus gives the statement, well, this type can only come out by prayer. And we're going to come back to this issue later on in our applications but for right now, what I want you to understand is Jesus seems to be getting frustrated to some extent with the issue of arrogance. So there's an arrogance attached to disciples who think that they can cast out demons without invoking the name of Jesus. They can do it without prayer. They become self-sufficient. There's an arrogance amongst the Jewish leaders who have been trying to discredit Jesus' authority despite all the evidence that's been in front of them up until this point. And there's an arrogance even in the Father. Now you think he's the most humble guy in the situation, the most humble guy in the story and yet, when he comes to Jesus, what does he say? If you can help my son. And that's the point where Jesus has had enough and he's frustrated and he says, if, what are you talking about if? If you just had enough faith in me, all things are possible for those who believe. And it's at that moment that we get the Father's statement where he says, I do believe, Lord, help me overcome my unbelief. Now, if you were here with us last week, we mentioned this is maybe the most spiritually self-aware statement so far as I can tell in all of Scripture. The man is saying he's trying to believe more. He's trying to express his faith better and yet he is so overcome by doubts and fears and self-insecurities that he just can't get himself to do what he knows he should be doing. He can't get himself to believe what he knows he should be believing and that's enough for Jesus to help him. This acknowledgement, Jesus honors this acknowledgement and that's amazing. It's incredibly helpful to know that Jesus helps us not because of our holiness but because of our helplessness if you're just willing to acknowledge your helplessness. See, understand that's different from the way the rest of the world and world religion works. World religion works on the concept that if you are faithful and you do religious acts, X, Y, and Z, then your God will love, accept, and bless you. It would, it's what I would call a meritorious faith or, more subtly, it's faith in your faith. It's faith in your own faithfulness. That's not, that's not grace. And that's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus is confidence in blessing because of God's inherent goodness despite even the lack of my own faithfulness. And for the man to say this, for the man to say, I don't deserve your blessing. I've got doubts. I've got weaknesses. I've made a bunch of mistakes. I don't deserve your blessing. But Jesus, you are a God of grace. So help me. See, that's, That's faith in Jesus, not faith in yourself. I'll go back to whenever I counsel with people, it's very interesting, very subtle in their language, but how often people try to express faith in their faithfulness or faith in their faith rather than faith in Jesus. And those are two very, very different things. So Jesus says he's going to help the guy and yet it's going to come through a fairly painful process. In all the stories of exorcisms throughout the gospels, there's always a conflict between Jesus and the demons. Whenever whenever Jesus and the demon are present and he does an exorcism, there's always a confrontation. This, by the way, is another indicator that there's a difference between an exorcism and typical healing miracles because when Jesus cures Peter's mother and when Jesus heals the paralytic, he doesn't talk to any demons. So, there can be just physical ailments and then there can be spiritual ailments that have physical symptoms attached to them and that's what we have here. But there's always this confrontation. And furthermore, when there's a confrontation, these exorcisms are always a little, as you can imagine, a little traumatic. And, you know, we're going to come back to this in the applications too but notice what Jesus says here. He says, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. But the boy looked so much like a corpse that everybody else who's looking at him, when they evaluate him, they say, he killed the kid. He's dead. That's how traumatic it is. The next verse, the next verse is going to say that Jesus grabs the boy by the hand, he lifts him to his feet, and he's healthy and healed. But for now, what you need to see is, in order for the boy to be healed, it has to get worse before it gets better. For Jesus to do surgery in your life, and for Jesus to do some cutting in your life, it has to get bloody, it has to get messy, it has to get worse before it gets better. And people always come to Jesus and say, just take my problems away. And it's like, well, are you willing to go through the procedure? Okay? brings us to the final point. Jesus has cured the boy. And again, we're going to come back to that a little bit. But now he needs to unpack the miracle. So he takes his disciples, they go inside and what do the disciples say but, okay, why weren't we able to do this? And Jesus' response to them is, because this is a kind of demon that can only come out by prayer, which is an amazingly insightful uh, statement. But here's what, what they're saying. Because remember, these guys have driven out demons. And these guys have healed the sick and Jesus, earlier on in Mark chapter 6, Jesus had commissioned them to go out and do ministry and they preached with authority and they healed the sick and they drove out demons and so they are absolutely befuddled and taken aback by the fact that they are now completely inept to do anything about the demon that is afflicting this young man. And they say, why can't we do it? And he says, because you're too self-reliant. The lesson that we learned in that is there is a very, very, very subtle line between confidence in your gifts and confidence in the gifts God gives you. They're the exact same gifts, it's just a difference of perception. Are those your gifts? Are those gifts that God gives you? And the difference you can tell in the attitude in someone's life of how they perceive those things is the difference between arrogance and humility. Exact same gifts, are they arrogant or are they humble? It determines whether or not they think they're their gifts or gifts that God has graciously bestowed upon them. The quintessential biblical example of this, most of you are familiar with, is Samson. Samson got to a point where he had conditioned himself to believe that his physical strength was simply his gift. Irrespective of what kind of relationship he had with God, he just had this gift. It wasn't a gift that God had given him and in the end, he ends up humiliating himself because he could not distinguish between a God-given gift and just something that he had a right to and deserved. And here again, we have the exact same thing. In our lives, if you're a believer, God has gifted you, spiritually gifted you. But your ability to tap into the power of that gift is directly proportionate to understanding whether or not it's a gift from God or just something that you have a right to and ownership of. And recognize your dependence on him. The illusions of self-sufficiency are always going to bring you in down into humiliation. And the final thing that we hear Uh, in this is this is a kind that can only come out by prayer. We'll talk about that a little bit more but for right now, some of you, some of you follow along in your Bibles and I guarantee some of your Bibles, somebody's going to ask me this later if I don't say it now, there's a footnote in your Bible at this point that will say, uh, where it says this kind can only come out by prayer and it'll have a footnote and say, and some manuscripts say, and fasting. So there's some scholarly debate about the early manuscripts that were translated. Should translators include and fasting here or not? What I wish it would include in the footnote is thematically it doesn't matter because prayer and fasting are overlapping spiritual disciplines. They both describe dependency on God. They both illustrate dependency on God. If you ever fast physically, you know that within a matter of missing a couple meals, you feel sick and angry and like you're going to die. And God is telling you, yep, you're not self-sufficient. If you only miss a couple meals, you're going to realize how insufficient you are inherently. And what is prayer? Why does that go with fasting? Because prayer is an acknowledgement, I'm not big enough to run my own life. I am totally dependent on you, my almighty God. And that is a very spiritually healthy and powerful place to be. Okay, so what does that mean? We've analyzed the text. I got three application points for you. But the first one, we actually, we're only going to make it real brief because we touched on it a lot last week. The process of conversion. Remember we said, the father here who says, Lord, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. We said that's maybe the most spiritually self-aware statement one can make. Uh, and we said essentially what he's doing is he's acknowledging Jesus as Lord and he's simultaneously saying, and yet there are these terribly unconverted chambers that exist in my heart that I still need you to persuade. I still need your spirit to convert. And therefore, what we apply, how we apply this to ourselves is this. Be honest. Start being more honest. honest. Start being more honest with yourself, start being more honest with God when you pray to him, and start being more honest in what you present to the world. We're so conditioned to present the best possible, most filtered version of ourselves to the world that it is essentially just a lie and we start to believe the lies that we tell about ourselves. That's spiritually unhealthy. It leads you into this path of uh, believe self-sufficiency. Be honest with God. Be honest with yourself. Be honest with the world about the mistakes that you've made, about how much help you currently need, and about how much growth you still have yet to do. Don't ever present yourself to the world as a finished product. Too many Christians tried to do that for too long and it has conditioned a nation of people who think about Christianity in terms of hypocrisy. Do not present yourself to the world as a finished product but as a saved sinner. That the Holy Spirit will one day perfect in heaven, but even right now he's working on. And God will absolutely bring strength to that professed weakness, okay? Application number two, initial painful proximity to Christ. I just want to rewalk through the interaction that Jesus has with the boy. It's, it's really interesting. So we said at the beginning, in verse 19, uh, he says, okay, there's this demon-possessed boy, bring him to me. That's the first point. And then as he goes on, he interacts with the the spirit. He has a dialogue with the impure spirit by which he casts the demon out. But as the demon is leaving, then we get to verse 26 and it says, The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. And the boy looked like a corpse so much that everybody said, many said, he's dead. Do me a favor, put yourself in the father's shoes at this moment. So maybe this is your only son, maybe this is your oldest son, even if it's not. It's it's one of your children that you love. You've brought your afflicted boy to Jesus to be healed. Jesus puts his hands on the boy and now he looks dead. It's like Jesus killed, I thought you were supposed to be a miracle worker and you just killed my son. How scary of a process is this for him? And herein lies our second application point. The closer you come into deep relationship with Jesus Christ, he requires you to make your most precious things in this life vulnerable to him. say that one more time because it's kind of confusing. If you're going to enter into deeper relationship with Jesus Christ, you have to make the most precious things you have in this life vulnerable to him. And that's scary. That can be painful. Again, maybe the biblical example of this one is Abraham and Isaac. Remember, Abraham's waited a, a century for Isaac. He's gone through all sorts of hardship. Finally, he's going to have a son. And not only that, but like the promises of the entire world are resting on this kid's shoulders. He's going to turn into a nation. His offspring is going to bring about the Savior. Uh, and sure enough, uh, God comes to Abraham in the middle of the night and says, Yes, I want you to take your son, your only most dearly loved son. I want you to take him over to Mount Moriah. I'm going to give you three days to think about it while you're walking over there. And I want you to sacrifice him on the top of that mountain. Now, God throughout the Bible has forbidden child sacrifice, which is one of the things that makes him distinct from some of the other gods that we encounter in the Old Testament. He forbids, he loves the sanctity of human life, that he forbids child sacrifice. But here, he's commanding it. Why? Well, God is challenging Abraham to see whether or not he loves Isaac more than he loves God. Because if, in fact, Abraham loves Isaac more than he loves God, then he's not going to have a healthy relationship with either God or with Isaac moving forward. Why? Because in order to enter into deeper relationship with God, you have to make your most precious things in this life vulnerable to him. There's another similar example, or it's at least related, in Mark chapter 5. So earlier on in this gospel, there's a story of another demon possessed guy. He's possessed not just by one demon, like that that would be vacation to him, being possessed by the one demon. He's possessed by a bunch of demons that refer to themselves as legion. And Jesus cures him, and he drives out the demons. He sends them into some nearby pigs in the region of the Decapolis, and uh, those pigs run down the bank, go into the lake, and uh, they're dead. This guy who's been demon possessed for who knows how long is finally experiencing relief. It's the best day of his life, and and does he have a bunch of people who just want to be there and rejoice with him? No. The townspeople in that city. You know what we hear about them? How do they react? They're, one, terrified and, number two, they plead with Jesus to leave. Now, ask yourself the question, why would you want a miracle worker to leave from your presence? Why would you want the Son of God to leave from your presence? Why would anybody ask to get rid of the presence of Jesus Christ? I'll tell you why. Because when he becomes more present in your life, it becomes terribly inconvenient to your selfishness. You say, "Okay, Jesus, I want more of you in my life, but not if it's going to screw up the plans that I have for me. Not if it's going to screw up my time, not if it's going to screw up my career, not if it's going to screw up my money, not if it's going to screw up my sex life. I want more of you, but not if it requires me to fall, to fall before you as Lord, not if I have to make my most precious things in this life, i.e., my idols vulnerable before you." See, he already cost the man who he drove out the legion from into the pigs. He already cost those people a fortune in livestock and they thought if getting close to Jesus is going to cost me something and it always does, make no mistake, discipleship is not cheap. It always does. If becoming spiritually healthy is going to be painful, a lot of people just say, well, no thanks. You know? Um, It's not that there's a lack of evidence for why they don't believe in Jesus. It's that it's terribly inconvenient to be a disciple of Christ and they don't want that presence because of the inconvenience attached to it. But what I would challenge you again to say, and I mentioned this already, that some of you might think, well, the demonic possession stuff, this all sounds a little weird and whatever. And discipleship is sounding maybe even more tough than I, I thought inviting Christ into my life might seem. What I would challenge you to understand is even in the secular world, we understand if there's something inside of you that needs to get removed, there's typically a painful process by which you do it. So if you have a large cancerous tumor on the inside of you, can a surgeon get at that without cutting you open? No, so when when he or she cuts you, it's going to be bloody, it's going to be messy, it's going to be painful and actually, it might actually leave some scars for the rest of your life. And yet, if you do, in fact, have a cancerous tumor inside of you and you have the opportunity to have a world-class physician open you up, it's worth it every time. You know, so is it easy? No. Is it clean? No. Will it hurt? Probably. Is it worth it? Always. And so here, too, you have a boy who's deaf and mute and Jesus comes into his life and his life gets worse. He's he's a deaf child tormented by a demon. His life ain't great. And Jesus comes into his life and initially his life is going to get worse. Jesus puts his hand on the boy and, uh, you know, what does that mean? It means if Jesus is going to come into your life and bring healing, there's often going to be pain before there's relief. There's often going to be a level of trauma and hurt before there's healing and recovery. Anyone, by the way, as I look out into the congregation, I know, as a matter of fact, there's probably probably two dozen people in this room have recovered, gone through a significant process of recovery from addiction. And any person who has ever gone through addiction recovery knows the pain of withdrawals. Withdrawals are a little slice of hell. But the only way for you to get to the other side of health, you have to go through that. You have to go through that pain. And all I'm saying is, don't get scared off. Uh, Americans get very scared of discomfort. Don't get scared off of discipleship from the initial discomfort when God wants to heal you. Right? Brings me to the final point here. Mountaintops and crosses. Uh, I mentioned again at the beginning of the text, we have Jesus and the three disciples on the mountain. If you remember on the top of the Mount of Transfiguration, what do the disciples there want to do? Stay. Like, don't make us leave. It's too, much, it's too much fun. It's too enjoyable. There's too much pleasure up here. We want to set up shelters. We want to stay but it's Jesus who is the one that says, nope, we got to go down. We got to go down the mountain. I got to go to Jerusalem. I got to go to my cross. And herein, we learn this like last point that our life here on earth is like being at the bottom of the mountain. It's not exactly a mountaintop and it's not exactly an abyss. But life here on the in-between of heaven and hell has moments of like mountaintops and moments of crosses. And that's helpful to keep in mind too. Remember at the bottom of the mountain, Jesus and his three disciples, what did they find? When they came down the mount of transfiguration, what did they find? Interestingly, this is what this is the point that whenever I study a text for like the 100th time and something clicks and there's new like revelation, The most interesting thing to me is at the bottom of this mountain, they find ineffectual spiritual leadership and they find demonic influence. Now, what a lot of Bible commentators will mention here is there's an association very clearly on the top of the Mount of Transfiguration between the Old Testament and what's going on right there. And that's very obvious because at the top of the Mount of Transfiguration, who's there? It's Moses on one side. It's Elijah on the other side. Elijah is the great prophet amongst the Jews. And they said he was going to come back and Jesus makes it very clear that he comes back in the form of John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ. And then what about Moses? Moses is the other one but remember, Moses himself said back in the Exodus that God is going to bring up one like me from among our own people who will be a much greater prophet, who will be a much greater deliverer than I am. Why? Because he's not going to just deliver people from slavery in Egypt, he's going to deliver people from slavery to sins, slavery to death, and slavery to demonic influence. And therefore, you remember Moses when he's up on uh, Mount Sinai and he comes down, he has this glorious experience where he's practically radiating and he comes down with the Ten Commandments and he gets to the bottom of the mountain and what did Moses find at the bottom of the mountain? Ineffective spiritual leadership and demonic influence, right? Right? Aaron, the high priest, had taken the people's gold, melted it down, uh, fashioned a golden calf that the people are now dancing around, idols and demons and all that kind of stuff. It's the exact same situation. Exact same setting. Here, what do we find in this? Jesus and his three disciples come down the mountain. At the bottom of the mountain, they find ineffective spiritual leadership. Disciples who can't drive out any demons because they're all so self-sufficient. Ineffective spiritual leadership in the Jewish leaders who don't even understand the gospel at all. And demonic influence over creation, demonic influence over the humans that are being hurt by this along the way. So, again, what do we learn in all of this? There's there's a lot of different things but God, God is teaching us, at least in part, that in this lifetime, you're in the in-between and therefore you get mountaintop experiences and you get crosses. Those mountaintop experiences are the moments in life where if you've lived long enough, you've experienced this, where you feel so immersed in the love of God, so affirmed by the love of God, so comforted by the grace of God, that it fuels you and it energizes you to get through life so that you can walk through life and courageously face your crosses and courageously fight off the demons that are constantly lying to you and tormenting you. you say, okay, well, again, where do I get the energy I know, so remember what demons do. Demons go back to the Garden of Eden. Satan, in the form of a serpent, doesn't reach out and bite Adam and Eve. Satan, as a serpent, lies to Adam and Eve. And therefore, when Satan comes at you in life, it's probably not going to be in the form of fangs trying to grab hold of you. It's going to be in the form of whispers trying to deceive you. And so what do you do with the demons that are attacking you in life in that way? I know it's exhausting. I know some of you are exhausting right now. I can honestly tell you I'm at the point in ministry where not a single day goes by in 365 days in a calendar year. I'm not complaining about this. I'm just stating it as a reality. Not a single day goes by where a member doesn't reach out to me and say, life is not good because of whatever. And what has happened most of the time is a demon out there has convinced you to hate. To to hate your work and to hate your marriage and to hate your body and to hate your weaknesses and to hate those mistakes that you've made in the past that continue to haunt you and to hate yourself. Where do you get the energy to cast off the demons that are these like mind-altering demons? Well, I know where it doesn't come from. It doesn't come from yourself because the nine disciples who were ineffective, tried to drive off demons through their own willpower and self-sufficiency and it didn't work. Where does the power come from? How did Jesus say these demons get out? It's by way of prayer. Now what does prayer mean? The way you get power to dismiss the demons in your life or in the lives of your loved ones is to invoke the name of the one before whom the demons cower. The transfiguration is just a little foretaste of the resurrection and they both prove that God is powerful enough to help you. But God, by definition of being God, maybe we don't doubt that, but what we're more inclined to doubt is, does he incentivized? does he desire, especially after all I've done to help me? What you need to see then is you need to see the fact that Jesus came down the mountain. He didn't have to. For that matter, he didn't just come down the mountain, he came all the way down from heaven to earth and he came down all the way from Earth through the portal of the cross down into hell. But he did it because he wanted to do it. He did it because he loved you and me. He did it to switch places with us. And so what he did is he went to Jerusalem and he went to the cross and he he sacrificed all of his own personal comfort, all of his own personal glory, all of his own self-preservation to rescue you and me from our sins. And that proves without a shadow of a doubt, there's no way you can possibly look at the cross of Jesus Christ and say he doesn't love me. Because God, who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us, how would he graciously not give all things to us? God is powerful enough to help you. God clearly loves you enough to help you and therefore just ask him to. Some of us aren't asking and some of us aren't trusting him to. Ask him to help you, trust him to help you, and don't stop until the demons are finally gone. Let me just close like this. When Jesus is at the top of the Mount of Transfiguration, the Father says something that we hear several times in the Gospels that is really amazing. He says, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. This is my child and I love him. And for the sake of Jesus Christ, see what Jesus does at the cross is he switches places with us. He goes to the cross, he comes down a mountain to go to the cross so that when you and I look at the cross and believe that it's true, Our souls, we know, will get transported to the top of Mount Zion for all eternity. He switches places with us because he loves us and therefore, every time the Father looks at us right now, he looks at us through the lens of the cross of Jesus and he says about you and me every day, this is my son, this is my daughter, I love him, I love her, I'm proud of you. Every day, no matter who you are, what you've done, what mistakes you've made, God Almighty looks through the lens of Jesus Christ, looks at you and says, I'm proud of you. And therefore, you walk with him wherever he asks you to go, whatever cross he asks you to climb on, because you guaranteed, you know there's a mountaintop on the other side of that. Let's close with prayer. Lord Jesus, whether we are currently afflicted by demons who are trying to convince us of untrue things, or we're maybe not spiritually at our strongest because we've become deceived, we've deceived ourselves into thinking that we're self-sufficient and this is bred an arrogance in our lives. Whatever the case, help us. We believe but we need you to help us overcome our unbelief. We need you to heal us and our loved ones and we need you to motivate us by looking through the cross to Mount Zion. As we do so, may we walk with you and glorify your name.